U.S. Paralympic Trials gold medalist, a 2013 world champion, a two-time MVP for the National Beat Baseball Association, a published author, and... Good morning, good afternoon, good day to everyone, and thanks for listening. This is our fourth podcast, and this is Scott McDamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education. Today, we have a very, very special guest, and because of him, we are going to be focusing on disability sports and the Paralympics today, rather than on just adaptive physical education and students with disabilities. Um... I am extremely excited to bring you Tanner Gears, a 2011 Parapan American gold medalist, and he got that in the long jump, a 2012 U.S. Paralympic Trials gold medalist, a 2013 world champion, a two-time MVP for the National Beat Baseball Association, a published author and a motivational speaker, and I probably am missing out on a few more because he has such an outstanding resume. So, good morning, Tanner. How are you? I am doing so great, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. I love it, brother. All right. Awesome. So, today we're just going to get started, and can you tell me a little bit about um, who you were as an athlete prior to um, this accident? Definitely. I I love sports. It's just, you know, that was an outlet for me. It was really uh, my ability to express myself physically, and... uh, you know, so I wasn't a great singer. I wasn't really a great artist, but I really enjoyed expressing myself through physical activity. And you know, I just listing off the sports. I mean, baseball, soccer, wrestling, lacrosse, football. Uh, I did a little bit in track. Uh, you know, and, and others. You know, basketball. Uh, you know, pickup sports. You know, you name it. Uh, I was doing it. And uh, swimming. I even did once one uh, one summer. Uh, you know, my mom put me in a, uh, a, a, a what is it? A, a water? Uh, is it water polo? Yep. Uh, yep. Oh man, that those those athletes are beasts. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I really was kind of trying to live the dream of playing football in college. And you know, five foot nine white guy with you know moderate uh, genetic ability. That really wasn't happening, and so I had, uh, even though I, I couldn't see that hindsight, twenty twenty, I really committed myself um, to football, and um, ended up transitioning back into lacrosse or into lacrosse, and um, went up to ASU, and I played up there, played lacrosse up at ASU, and um, yeah, so that's uh, my background. You are a Paralympic athlete, and you have a visual impairment. And I wanted to just kind of ask you about how did how did you become visually impaired? Yeah, no, great question. And I am definitely not. Uh, it's I think it's I think it's a natural thing for us humans to be curious and ask questions. And some people do get offended, uh, but I'm not one of those people. I'm just so grateful to be uh, here and share my story uh, with your audience. So you know, I've been an athlete my whole life, uh, playing sports as long as I can remember. And then when I was 21. I was in a really bad auto accident, and a tree came through my my windshield, and it impaled me in the face. And so I lost sight out of my left eye immediately. Pretty much shattered every bone in my face, my brain, uh, my skull was uh, torn open so hard. 
that my brain was exposed to the air and uh, I, you know, multiple spinal column fractures and I should have died. Uh, but I made it to the hospital and they saved my life. 19, 19 days later, um, I wake up from a surgery totally blind, blind out of the right eye as well. And that was due to the uh, intracranial inflammation from my brain swelling, applying prolonged pressure upon my optic nerve. And so um, so my, my right eye, which is still intact, is fine. Uh, it's just there's no signal between the eye and the occipital lobes um, via the optic nerve. So uh, no signal there. And uh, so that's how I lost my sight. That, that's a um, amazing story that you survived that and your story afterwards is so inspiring and amazing. So after you, you know, had this accident occur, what, um, how did that impact you as an athlete? Well, it was devastating, not just as an athlete, but as an individual, because I really thought my life was over. I thought my life was meaningless, uh, that I was worthless, you know, and that was exacerbated by, you know, the general interaction with the public and myself. It was months after getting out of the hospital until anybody in public ever spoke a word to me. And we're in, you know, between the doctor's visits. And so my family, at the, you know, I, obviously I was living with my, my parents in recovery after I got out of the hospital. And they live in the sticks. And so, we, you know, we'd have to stay in town all day, you know, because... It, was just too far of a drive to go back and forth, back and forth, and I mean, doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, you know, and then on addition to that, it would be, you know, eating out at restaurants, the grocery store, you know, to take groceries home, uh, you know, and, and rent, you know, maybe we'd stop at the movies, you know, anything to kind of fill up the time while we were in the day, uh, all day in the, in the city, and no one would talk to me, and I remember the first day that someone talked to me, and literally it was months, um, after the accident, after I got out of the hospital. So, and then, uh, you know, moving forward, I was looking for something in, um, you know, my dad really changed my perspective on my life and really helped me realize, you know, that I do have potential, I do have skills, I do have worth. And so that kind of got me going. But it was also a time of, of reflection and, you know, coming to terms with the situation. So, with that in the background, I was I was looking around in the closet one day. I was searching for something. I don't remember what it was, but I came across this hunk of leather. I was like, "What's this?" It was on the shelf and underneath some clothes. And I pull it out, and instantly I knew what it was. It was a baseball glove. And I threw it on my hand, and I pretended to catch the ball and crow hop and throw it, you know, like many kids do, making that throw to home plate to win the game. And you know, I was smiling. And then, you know, like I said, time for reflection. And, you know, what am I going to do now? Uh, and I, and so aloud, I told myself, you know, Tanner, this part of your life is over. And I took it off and I put it back in the closet. And that was in 2004. Um, you know, it wasn't until 2008 um, that I even found out about Sports with Blind. And I was watching the news. And I saw beat baseball on the news the very next weekend I was out there playing. That is uh, truly an amazing story, inspiring, and you know, it strikes uh, near my heart too, just because I love beat baseball so much. And I know that your resume for beat baseball is quite outstanding, 
since you're a two-time MVP in the sport. So, and that was going to lead to my next question of how did you find it, but that's an amazing story. Um, so once you found Beat Baseball, how did that impact your feelings about being blind or being visually impaired in the community? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it really kind of lit a new, it added a, a fuel to the flame that was already going. Like, I was motivated at the time, right? Like, I'm, I'm at this time when I found out about beat baseball. You know, I'm a full-time student. I'm a I'm, I'm gameplay employee full-time, you know, and, but stepping out onto the field, you know, that was the first time that I, I really felt normal. I really felt like there was an, a level playing field. And, you know, and then to see the other blind athletes, you know, come together as a team, that, that's what I was missing. I was an outsider. I was an outlier. And, you know, to be a part of a team, you know, I really felt unified. And then when we went to the World Series for the first time and I saw, you know, so many other teams. And when I say see, um, ladies and gentlemen, you know, the English language isn't going to change because I lost my sight. So I still, quote unquote, watch television or I go to see a movie. So when I say those things, please know that I am totally blind. This is just how I talk. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I saw all these other teams like come together for this amazing event, um, you know, it really just felt, made me feel more connected with the blind community. All right. Um, you know, and that, that story really of you becoming, you know, part of the community and doing it with a lot of other people and having that level playing field that also, you know, I, I relate to that because at my camp for the blind that I run, uh, we run it inclusively as in we have people without disabilities, um, playing with, you know, people with visual impairments and playing visual impairment sports and beat baseball is one of my favorite ones because, you know, when our sighted participants come in and put on the blindfolds um, and get in that game, I think that's one of those first realizations for them, you know, our sighted friends, that they are, you know, the same and that people with visual impairments just have, can be really good at, at certain things as well because I've never seen a sighted person put on a blindfold and play beat baseball uh, very, very well. So, but I've seen it on the other end quite a bit. So, so Tanner, can you describe to me the rules of beat baseball and some of the equipment for beat baseball? Definitely. So, we only have three bases, right? Home plate, first base, and third base. And that's because, you know, we're never leading off. You know, we're not rounding first base to try to turn a double or, you know, get a triple. That's just too dangerous. There's only three outcomes that can happen uh, when a batter's up to bat. One is they strike out. Two is they hit the ball and get put out. Or three, that they score a run. Now, you know, the bases are 100 feet from home plate, and there are these 36-inch high, uh, you know, like tackling dummies, if you will, pylons and uh, foam pylons, and inside of them is a continuous buzzing uh, buzzer. And you know which base to run to uh, based on the base operator randomly flipping on the third base or the first base. So if you can imagine 
the pitcher pitches the ball, and as the ball's in the air, they turn on a base. And so when you hit the ball, you know then, hey, I'm going to first base or third base. And um, you score a run if you get to the base before the defense picks up the ball off the ground and away from their body. Um, vice versa, if they do that before you get to the base, you're put out. There's six innings um, and, you know, three outs, uh, uh, you know, for the away team and the home team for each inning. So six outs total per inning, three for each side. Uh, the strike, uh, the pitcher is also on the batter's team, right? So the other team's pitcher isn't throwing fastballs and curveballs and change-ups to try to strike you out. The object is to hit the ball. And so the pitcher's job is to know where the batter's going to hit and tell him when to swing through a cadence. Ready, set, ball. And then the batter's job is to swing in the same spot every time and use that cadence, based on that cadence, knows when to swing. There's six guys in a lineup, and so there, thus there's six defenders in the field. And you can have what's known as a spotter or two spotters, which will help the defense get to the ball faster. And they do that by dividing up the field into pizza slices. And each pizza slice has a number. So if you say, like, two, and you can adjust how you might say two, like two or two, and the, the defenders know what that means, and they can run to the, the appropriate uh, pizza slice and while tracking the ball to you know, better play it. And the sport is becoming a much more defensive game. Back in the day, it used to be a high, high-scoring game, uh, but now it is a much more conservative game. Are, are the beat baseball rules from these international teams or, you know, from team to team, are all the rules consistent? Yeah, that's a great question. I also want to say, too, I forgot that the ball is beeping, and so that's how the defense knows how to track the ball or they can hear the ball to track it. But the rules are mostly uniform. There's a couple wild cards out there in Europe that are playing some uh, along some rules that just really aren't safe. And, you know, where they actually have, uh, uh, you know, people on base, you know, it's really more in line with how the traditional game is played. But it's just really a non beat baseball as it is, is a hugely uh, stressful sport on the body. Hugely stressful. I mean, you know, you can imagine every time a ball's hit, guys are diving on the ground. They're running hard to get to this pizza slice and then throwing their bodies down on the ground to catch the ball. If you're running down the baseline to score a run and you trip on the base or, you know, you hit the base and you go down, you know, that doesn't happen in regular baseball. So it's a hugely stressful uh, thing of the body, but you know every other uh, country and team is using the NBBA rules and guidelines on how to play the game, except for a couple wild cards. You know a lot about the history of beat baseball, or from when I was talking to you earlier, it seems like you have a lot of expertise in that sport. So, what? How did beat baseball come about? Well, in 1964, the first beat baseball was, you know, came into conception or, you know, actually became a tangible thing. And I, you know, I think it was Charlie Fairbanks, and I might be chopping that up, uh, who developed it. And, you know, but the ball construction was poor. 
and you know, so it would fall apart or it break. You know, slamming a bat into the ball, um, you know, it's tough. You know, to develop something like that, especially in 1964, that can withstand that kind of stress. So, in 1975, though, um, a new beef ball was made, and you know, that's when the real MBBA was established. So 2015, and, and the first World Series. So in 2015, uh, this is the, the 40th anniversary of the MBBA. Okay. So the MBBA, let's, let's backpedal. So what is the MBBA? Absolutely. So that's the National Beat Baseball Association. And that's kind of like the governing body over the sport um, here in the United States. And, um, yeah, so that was, um, I forget his name too, but it was a, uh, an attorney here based in Arizona who actually came up with that, um, name when, you know, they, and when they started to establish rules and guidelines, how the game should really be played and, you know, what's the, you know, the framework of this sport, um, because they saw the growth or the potential and, you know. It was, it was time to get serious. It was time to really establish the structure. So that, I mean, the NBBA now has, you know, a board of directors, and, you know, it's a, uh, we even have a, we're even in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Wow. Uh, you're, you're, uh, we, in 2014, we got a, uh, a little memorial there, and it was going to be a temporary thing, but now we're working on that becoming a, not only enlarging it, but be- it becoming a permanent fixture fixture um, at the Major League Baseball Hall of, uh, Hall of Fame. Wow. So the sport, since the 1960s and 1970s, it seems to have really, really expanded since then. So yep. right now, um, you know, you, I know you are MVP for their World Series for the Beat Baseball Association. So where is the sport right now? How many teams are there? What is the interest level right now in this MB baseball? It's exponential, the interest. It is growing tremendously. This year, again, um, and pretty much every year that I've been playing, we're growing and growing and growing. And I, you know, I got started in 2008. And you know, this year we had 22 teams based in the United States show up at the World Series. We had three international teams. Team Canada was there. Two Taiwanese teams were there. And next year, we're, we're anticipating to have even more international teams. We have interest in Australia, China. There's teams already playing beatball in the Caribbean. Uh, there's a couple teams in Europe that are going. And, you know, it is really, truly becoming an international uh, event. So, and, and the 22 teams that showed up this year from the United States, that doesn't even make up all the registered teams. So it in the United States, it's it's growing tremendously. The interest is insanely large. So, where do you see beat baseball going in the future? So it, it, it's becoming this bigger thing. It's it's come from this small conception in the 1960s. There's association that comes develops and grows and now we have all these teams becoming international what is the future layout for beat baseball 
Well, you know, I've had a dream for a couple years, Scott, and this is a great question. And the dream is to share the sport that changed my life in with the world in a way that will change the lives of so many other people, will drive people like the sport has driven me. And that is by, through a grassroots effort from the bottom to the top, making beat baseball a Paralympic sport. That's my dream. You know, the Paralympics, it's the third largest event in the world, behind number two, the World Cup for soccer, and number one, the Olympics. In 2012, you know, there was, gosh, there was millions of tickets uh, sold. In London, every every venue, every session, morning and evening, it was all sold out. I think it was, gosh, it was like 3.8 million tickets just for the Paralympics were sold. Uh, it was viewed by like half the population of the entire world, over a billion people. Not, I, I don't know about half the population of the world, but over a billion people uh, streamed at least one Paralympic event um, in 2012. In 2016, it's going to be even larger. Uh, it's really going to be a much larger success now that it's coming back to the Americas. And uh, But that's that's my dream. Uh, and then, you know, also, too, just establishing the sport locally here in the United States. It's a shame uh, that it was four years that I was blind until I even found out about blind sports, let alone um, this great sport called football. Absolutely. With that, are you planning on uh, competing with in the Paralympics in 2016? Definitely on the road to Rio right now, absolutely. Awesome. And what sports? So, right, sports, plural, because <laughs> I have recently started cycling, and I'm a power athlete. You know, when I started running the 100 meter and doing the long jump, you know, the director of high performance wanted me to run the 200. And I was like, uh... That's an eighth of a mile. <laughs> That's far. Uh, so, you know, for me to have this whole kind of paradigm shift and be able to get into cycling and then finding out about track cycling, uh, which is about a 60-second hardcore push and uh, over one kilometer on a track. And then they also have the 4K, um, four kilometer. And I think that I can also be competitive on the road in the 20-kilometer. That's... That's about 12 and a half miles, and if you're uh, if you're really crushing it, you can get that done in about 25 minutes. Wow. Wow, exciting. Uh, all right, so back to the beat baseball and your, your dream of having it in the Paralympics. Why should beat baseball be in the Paralympics compared to other sports? What, what makes it um, eligible or what, what would make it eligible for it to be in the Paralympics? Yeah, definitely. Great question. Well, why it should be is just because... It's it's a fantastic sport that really any any visually impairment uh, any visually impaired person can play, and I can get into that in a second. As well as the sport baseball and softball for a mainstream athlete is already contested across the globe. Why is it not being contested for visual impairment? You know, for example, soccer is contested in the Paralympics for cerebral palsy and visual impairment. Um, they might be phasing out the cerebral palsy um, soccer or football, but you know, five-a-side soccer visual impairment is contested in the Paralympics. 
Um, and you know, with with uh, baseball and softball, you know, most likely, like ninety nine percent likely to get voted back onto the the ticket for twenty twenty, it only makes sense that beat baseball should be a Paralympic sport as well. The uh, the other great thing, you know, so some of the there's a lot of hurdles that have to be jumped over before we can ever even consider that. So, for example, you know, we have to have a classification process. And classification is where you actually classify an athlete, uh, for example, like with a wheelchair athlete. You know, they have different core abilities. The, their abdomen, their abs, their core musculature has different varying uh, abilities. So somebody from the waist up is going to be able to do more than somebody from who has nothing, no core uh, stability from the sternum down. But that athlete is just going to be able to do more. And so they have a different classification for them. You know, for a leg amputee, a below-the-knee amputee is going to be able to do more than an above-the-knee amputee. And likewise, uh, unilateral versus bilateral. Uh, you know, so there's various classifications. Now, with beat baseball, the great thing is, is that we wear sleep shades. So as long as you're legally blind, you're qualified to play. And it's a the classification becomes a simple process because everybody's wearing sleep shades. So everybody's playing with the same amount of vision. Um, so that's a great thing. And uh, the other things that, you know, you know, team sports have to be contested in at least 24 countries in three IPC regions. So, you know, like you know, North and South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, Oceania, you know, that would be down like Australia, Fiji, and such. Um, you know, so that. And then we also have to have a quadrennial program. So, you know, we'll have to get some world championship events. We'll have to get some regional events. So, like the, the Pair Pan America games, like, you know, we'd have to get to beat baseball in that. You know, the Europe, uh, uh, the Europe games, like the Asia games, the Oceania games, we'd have to get that set up. And then leading up to Paralympics is all about the quadrennial program. Well, we would also have to set up, a, we'd also have to establish um, drug testing, uh, really solidifying concrete the rules and guidelines. You know, we'd also have to establish initiatives in each of these countries to promote the sport, make it accessible, and and grow the sport. So it's a it's an it's an a mountainous mountainous uh, endeavor. But uh, when there's a will, there's a way. Wow! Yeah, that's uh, really inspiring. When what Paralympic year do you think that uh, is a realistic goal for you to get? beat baseball into the uh, Paralympics? You know, I would love to see it in 2024. They're probably going to vote on that in 2018. You know, so if if we can establish things um, in three years, uh, now that's lofty, but, uh, you know, the, with the growth of the sport as it is right now, you know, with the countries already showing the interest, you know, we can use the framework that we've, you know, learned in 40 years here in the United States, you know, we can essentially share that with them. You know, we can go down to these countries and show them how to develop, you know, you know, 20 some odd teams, you know, almost 30 teams like we have here in the United States. 
um, you know, we can we will have to teach these umpires and volunteers like how to play the game, how it's meant to be played, you know, via the guidelines. So, uh, you know, I, I would like to say 2018, uh, you know, for a vote uh, for 2024 games, but you know, because it's a, a quadrennial thing, and we would have to have that whole program set up. Honestly, it, it looks like it would be. T- 2028. Um, you know, that I think that would be a in-air quotes realistic. Okay. That, I mean, it sounds like because it's growing so exponentially, but you have all these things. So what is so? If you were going to say your first, and I, it, from talking to you earlier, it sounds like you have some of these things already in motion. You have some talks with the association. So what is your very first step right now, or your next step? to getting the Paralympics, the beat baseball in the Paralympics? At the end of the day, everything comes down to money. Everything comes down to money. So, you know, like, building awareness by, you know, something that we've discussed in previous conversations is by getting beat baseball in every school for the deaf and the blind, or every school for the blind. You know, this is something that's got to be mandatory. You know, just like they have PE and physical activity, they must have beat baseball. Um, that's crucial. Uh, developing the awareness of the sport, I, I can't say how important that is because, you know, even as I describe it, I know that everybody's like, man, let's beat baseball. And we haven't even, we haven't even tried, like, how, how does that happen? You know, but once you see it being done, and so if you go to nbba.org, that's NBB, as in beat baseball, uh, a.org, you can see right there on the homepage a video of people playing the sport and how it's done and you know get signed up as a volunteer or donate if that's something that you're so inclined to do which we would greatly appreciate uh, but it, it really comes down to funding as the as the largest hurdle so you know for example you know getting helping out these teams in the Caribbean you know the Austin team uh, Austin Texas went down to, I believe, the Dominican Republic and did a demonstration down there and, you know, and had a massive audience and played with the Dominican team. And they had, you know, some, uh, a Dominican Republican, uh, a Dominican Republic uh, baseball player, professional baseball player show up. And, you know, it was a huge event. And things like that uh, are going to be really moving the needle um, in an international effort. Wow. At the end of the day, it comes down to money. We need more money. Yeah, I understand that. Also, <laughs> running a smaller <laughs> nonprofit, it's, it's there's a lot of obstacles and and it a lot of uh, things that need to be done. But money always is the thing that talks. So, okay, all right, uh, Tanner, thanks a ton for um, you know coming on to the podcast. I wanted to end with one more uh, quick question. Uh, and is about your athlete summit that's coming up this November. And if you could just tell our viewers real quick what the athlete summit's all about, um, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So when I was in high school, you know, I did not have any speed training. You know, I didn't have any nutrition guidance. I didn't really have all the things that are available today to really take performance to the next level. And so whether it's for adaptive sports 
sports for mainstream sports, there's a lot of information that people can use to incorporate um, to become better athletes. And that's what it's about. It's about helping athletes and coaches achieve greatness in sport and in life. And so we do that by providing and really pulling back the curtain on some very, very elite, high-level coaches, um, you know, what they're using right now in the trenches to develop their athletes at the Olympic, professional, and collegiate, as well as high school levels um, to really take it to the next level. And then we're also interviewing motivational athletes because, you know, the training's mandatory. We all know that. But, you know, there's, you know, I'm reminded of the Super Bowl this past year. You know, Tom Brady, a three-star recruit out of high school. Uh, 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 the Seahawks quarterback, a two-star recruit coming out of high school. No one on either side of the line was above a three-star recruit. And so why is that? It's because they have this mindset, right? They This unbelievable, unbreakable mindset and relentlessness. And so we have motivational athletes coming on to share, you know, how they you know, what kind of lifestyle, what kind of mindset, how do they approach training and competitions, the struggles, the decisions that need to be made in order to play at a higher level. And so we have, you know, you know, athletes that were, you know, mediocre in genetics, but, you know, were able to play in college. People who were, you know, going to the Olympics. Uh, even, uh, you know, the most famous that we have on is Steve Young. And I love his story because, you know, Steve Young went to BYU in college and really did not know how to throw the ball in college and really worked on his game, worked on his game, worked on his game, kind of broke out his junior and senior year. And that's uh, what really helped him play at the next level. He did not go to college with an amazing arm. He had amazing legs. Um, and so he talks about that, and he talks about, uh, you know, his life outside of sport and how all of that, and all the athletes talk about that, you know, how it's this entire encompassing uh, lifestyle choice that really allows people to go above and beyond uh, what, you know, what expectations we place upon them. All right, well, um Tanner, I hope that you can come by again and talk to us a little bit more. You have a wealth of information and knowledge, and I'm sure that you could uh, also contribute on another topic. So for all our viewers out there, you know, pay attention to Beat Baseball, uh, hoping that Tanner's leading the way to get it in the Paralympics as soon as possible, maybe 2024. We can see that game in action, um, and maybe we can help out with all those steps in between. So thanks again, Tanner, and... This is uh, us signing out on what's new in adaptive physical education. We'll talk to you soon. We have a few more interviews on the way. So have a great day, everyone.